The Start On Demand. On demand. Today we began a series called Lives Changed Forever, which looks at the aftermath of car crashes and those who have to deal with a tragedy. Today we learn the story of a father who lost his 22-year-old daughter and his struggle to deal with his grief. The RCMP is under fire after a video surfaced of an officer interrogating a teenage girl reporting a sexual assault in 2012, going so far as to ask her if she was turned on during the incident. Changes are coming to driver education in Manitoba. We'll talk about our failures as we tried to get our driver's license. And it's time to activate. We'll meet the creator of a unique interactive gaming business in Winnipeg that is the only one of its kind on planet Earth. I'm Brett McGarry. Alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, May 16th podcast for The Start. So here's the headline at CJOB.com. More in-car practice, less classroom time among MPI driver education overhaul. So Mackling, what's going on here with the changes to driver's ed? Yeah, so they're going to take you out of the, the classroom, put you behind the wheel a little more often, it sounds like, right? Yeah. That so some more practical application to what you're learning and uh, having someone, you know, look look over your shoulder and, and tell you what you're doing wrong. I guess it's more, uh, less theory. Yeah, well, you used to have 34 hours of class time. It's now going down to 20. And then the driving time, so the in-car time is, is almost doubled. It's going from 24 hours to 45 hours. So that's better. Like, I think you need to learn the signs and make sure you understand what all those things that you're going to We're going to see an increase in uh, stress and anxiety among driver's ed Teachers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the classroom stuff, it's true. I remember being in driver's ed and just jonesing to get out of that class. Like, what just am I like, doing in here? Okay. They just write on the chalkboard, don't hit anything. <laughs> <laughs> and now like, we're going to hit the cars. Now we're going to go out on the road. I also like that they're calling it the driver Z. So drive the words driver and the letter Z. The driver Z program. Get it? Driver Z. I get it. Yeah. So in driver Z, I mentioned that I had a, a failure uh, the second time I went out in the car, uh, I was not ready for where he took me. I had I had basically driven around my neighborhood, and that was it, because I was terrified to drive. But he took me out to somewhere into East Kildonan, I think. It was a long ride, and I put us in all sorts of peril. And I remember getting <laughs> to a four-way stop in a, in a suburb, and I had to turn right, and I, I just over-cranked the wheel, and I ended up on the boulevard. And, uh, like, I pulled the car right onto the boulevard, and the driver's ed teacher, they've had those extra pedals, right? They have a separate brake in the passenger seat, so he had to yeah. hammer the brake and tell, Stop! Stop the car! Oh, man. I got Wait, out I'm and, almost here. I got out and cried. So, yeah, driver's ed has, uh, eventually it was... Uh, I got my license. Like, do you think it was a good thing overall? I didn't take it. So. Uh, so nobody in my family took it but me. I don't know why I wanted to. I think it was just because everybody was doing it and you kind of want, like it was after school, all the 15 and a half year olds are meeting. Yeah, yeah. You just wanted to be part of it, right? Yeah. And you're in a small town. You're like, I want to be in driver's ed. And I think I had to pay for my own because my parents were like, you grew up on a farm. You've been driving since you were 11. <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing by now, like fine, but take this program. And then I failed my license and I was also the only person in my family to fail it. And I took the driver's ed. That's not a ringing endorsement of the program. <laughs> no, uh, that, I want to be clear. That's not a ringing endorsement of my driving skills. Fair I'm, enough. I'm just, it's, it's me. Okay. Oh, yeah, I took it. It was, it was, it was fun. Um, it was a small town driving ed course, too, right? We only did one day of city driving where 
the instructor took three of us, a carload, into the city, and we all took turns getting a little bit of city driving like practice. to Winnipeg from yeah, Altona? Yeah, okay. yeah, and highway driving practice as well, right? I was thinking well, maybe right? you went all the way to Winkler. <laughs> no, no. It was still technically a town at that time, by the way. Um, <laughs> Had to get that in, right? Just got to make sure that people know their history. Oh, right. So in the city, it was fine. Everything was fine. The worst the only problem I had was we went to the McDonald's at Grant Park, and I was driving at the time, and just pulling into the parking spot in the mall was just, I just, just bedeviled me. I couldn't do it. We stopped, and we all had to get out on the passenger side because I was like an inch away on the driver's side from the car beside us, <laughs> and we were just hungry. And he's like, oh, we'll just pile up the other side. And, <laughs> and on the driver's test was fine, except the parallel parking, which I'm very good at now, mm-hmm. and... The way it's set up in Altona was that they, they, they only come to do the testing once a month or something like that, or maybe even once every six weeks. So a bunch of people take it all at once at the local community hall, and they set up the, the sticks, the pylons mm-hmm. for the parallel parking right outside the big bay window at the Everyone's watching. Oh, and no. everyone waiting to do their test next was watching me try and parallel park, and I knew it because <laughs> I'd been watching a bunch of them. So I was nervous. And then I, I got in fine. I didn't hit any of the sticks, but I ended up with uh, – the back left tire up on the curb, and, uh, and the guy just fell. goes, he goes, no, he goes, well, you're definitely within 18 inches. What? <laughs> Check mark. And like, oh, come on. <laughs> I want an inquiry. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I think of that every time I parallel park. Was it supposed to be three, was it three turns? Did you take driver's ed camp? Like, yeah. Or no. what was the rule in your test? You couldn't do more than three yes, adjustments. Three moves. Three, three moves. moves. Yeah. Yeah, park. Yeah, so right. I three still, moves. to this day, I like to get it in two. Like, it's my, it's like my thing. I'll be like, oh, yeah. Well, Check out that park job. I, I failed the written test once, and then I failed the driver's portion of it twice, and then I maxed out on points last time, and the guy told me, he said, uh, I could have failed you if I wanted to because you didn't uh, signal going into the uh, uh, the place where the testing was going. Right. But I, I was <laughs> I was being nice to you, so I, he said that had been too harsh. So I passed with the max fifty. Where points. were all these guys when I was taking my test? Like <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong until I went to turn back to the hall where the test yeah. was happening in Minnedosa, and I had my wheel cranked as far as it could go left while I was waiting to make yeah. this left turn, and he thought I was about to go into like oncoming traffic oh. and he grabbed the wheel from me and pulled me over and just goes fail oh, <laughs> no. and, my, and my dad was about to go overseas for this trip and he needed me to get the license to help out at home and all the, and I walk in and I'm bawling he's just like what the hell like, dangerous <laughs> action I'm familiar with the dangerous action I got those twice took me really? three times to get my really? license yes but we're not going to get into any you details because we are running out of time <laughs> and I have to I have to read this text message I took it three or four Years ago in high school, the classroom stuff was boring and nobody liked it. If they had an area where you could drive and learn the road, maybe a mock city, question mark, probably unfeasible, but that would be sweet. That's a good, I I like that. Yeah. If you could drive around safe leave without putting yourself in peril or putting others in peril. You like, need to have like 17 stalled cars though to make it real make it real Winnipeg like <laughs> just so like all stalled. these stalled cars all over the city. A like. couple of minutes we want to revisit Driver's Ed because changes are coming to Driver's Ed and they're including the name Driver Z, the letter Z. It's a, it's a play on words, Loren. You like wordplay? Oh, I do love wordplay. I laughed at that and then I always like to follow it up with get it Driver's Z. Zed. 
I know you're not old enough to remember the television show Definition with Jim Perry. I've used this example before. Oh, but Greg. if you are explaining the pun, if you're explaining the joke, it's simply not funny, Lorraine. I agree to disagree. The more you no. explain it, the funnier. Mm. There's a Z in it, Greg. But drivers is often said with a Z. And then they're just acknowledging it with the Z. Do you prefer Z? Would that make you smile? Mm. Drivers. I, uh, I, I, ha- I got to tell you, Mackling, I'm with McNabb on this one. <laughs> the more you explain it, the better it gets. Because the way she does it, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's like a family, you know, family guy. Yes. Uh, their joke, they, they drag their jokes out so long yeah. where it's funny yeah. and then it stops being funny. And then it's funny again yeah. because they just keep going with it. When he fights so. the chicken. Yeah, yeah or, like or, that one. Or like when he falls yes. down and he kind of goes, ah, ah. I don't know if I'm thrilled to be compared to Family Guy, but at the same time, Greg, oh. Zed. <laughs> Zed. Anything with a Z is, is supposed to be cool, Z. right? Is that the thing? CJOB.com question of the day brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Changes are coming to driver education in Manitoba. Did you take driver's ed? Yes, and it helped big time. Yes, but I still failed my test. No, and I wish I had. No, and didn't need it. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. Now, when I took driver's test, I uh, I wrote the test. I think I aced the written test. I was great at, at written tests in school, but the practical stuff always scared me. I was terrible in shops. Anything to do with, like not sitting at a desk I was always horrified by. And that that continued into my career here in radio. I don't like leaving the sanctity of the studio. Whenever I got sent out into the field, I was always, uh, 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 you know, when I had to talk. I remember having to talk to Sam Cates once. Because of the driving or because of the just the talking? Just, just yeah, having, to okay. be, having to be out in the world and doing like, oh, things. Do you, do you the sleep in the basement then? Like, do, you, do you ever leave? No, no, I'm good with driving now, but the point is, I'm good with the in the context of school. I was great at the written stuff, hated doing practical things like shops, and then in, it's followed me in my career. I don't like going out into the world and doing new things. So when I had to learn, circling back, when I had to learn how to actually drive, I was terrified, I was scared of doing it, and I failed my first test. Failed it spectacularly. I got, uh, I think, 135 demerits. Outstanding, McGarry. Be- because I, I was the, my biggest failure was I, I didn't signal in and out of parked cars. Didn't know that was a thing. I, I clearly missed that in driving. What do you mean? Ed. Like when you're parallel parked and then no, you have to put a like signal to come out? When you're driving down a street. Yeah. And you're, you, you're let's say you're, you're pulling going in, in so and someone out can pass you. Car, you have to sit, put your signal on to come in and out. Well, it's but, called an indicator. You're supposed to indicate your action no, I in get advance. That. It, it's, you're moving to the right, so you'd think you'd want a signal. You know, oh. you should take the driver's Z program then. You like her explanations now? Now that she's coming at you, <laughs> oh, basically sure. calling you a bad driver. Oh, she's calling me out. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, I didn't know it was a thing. I shouldn't and, be calling anyone out on driving. Sorry. Continue. And, and didn't know it was a thing. I think I got fifty demerits for that alone. Oof. Oh boy. So uh, I failed it really bad. Is it Carpathia School? Close to where we used to take. Did you do it in Transcona or did you do it in uh, off Academy Road? I did it on Nairn. Okay, because back in my day, that was the only place you could go. Okay. You could go to the old uh, Osborne Barracks or whatever, and of course, it's now the, the the Rady Campus. And you would go there, and it was great to get the get the appointment right at eight o'clock in the morning in rush hour traffic. But if you went. If they took you down Carpathia, south on Carpathia, there's the school there. So not only are you conscientious of the school, but quite often there's no parking allowed. And so I bet you half of my friends that 
took their test in the day, uh, went down the left side of the road and did not move over, as you were indicating that you would and you would need to put your blinker on, yeah. most people just went down the left side of the road as opposed to moving over to the right side of the road because typically there's parked cars there, but there were none quite often for two or 300 yards, and you could just see the guy, tick, tick, <laughs> tick. The points were just getting taken off big time, and then once you got back, after you passed or failed your parallel parking, it was like, yeah, by that school there, you should have been on the right-hand side the whole way, and it's like every five seconds you were losing about five points. Oh, was not good. Do you think you would pass your license now if yes. you went for a ten- test? yes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The parallel parking for me is is tricky because I, when we, when our radio station was in Wolseley, when we were at 9:30 Portage, I had to get good at par- parallel parking because we had to park in all the residential streets, right. and the parking was always a situation there. So I would always try to find a spot where you could like land a jumbo jet in between the two cars. <laughs> that was tough to do. That's an accomplishment on its own. You should sell that power to find a parking spot that large. So eventually, I said, "No, I got to remember how to parallel park," and I got good at it. And at the time, I also lived in Osborne Village mm-hmm. and you had to park to on the street. Yeah. So I redeveloped that skill. But then we moved here to Polo Park. Didn't have to parallel park, and I moved out of that neighborhood, and at that time, I actually bought a house, so I had a driveway. So parallel parking, gone. Now I forgot. I just can't do it. You know what they should add? This would mess up a ton of people, is to do the parallel parking on the other side of the road where the parked car is on the driver's side, because you encounter that on one-way streets in downtown Winnipeg, and people are horrible at that. I know people that will bypass five, six parking spots so that they can park on the right-hand side of the road because they will not parallel park the other side with your driver's door closest to the parked cars. They, they, they are incapable of doing that parallel park. Try this. I was living in Zimbabwe. I was like 21 years old. I used to borrow this friend's truck. They drive uh, the, the wheels on the other side of the car. Oh, so it's like okay. England. So the, re, the driver's steering wheel is on the right-hand side, but it's a stick shift. So you're stick shift, like you're shifting left-handed. gears with your left hand, which I've never done before. Nobody's ever done Clutch that before. Clutch is on the right or the left? Clutch was still the same. Okay. But then you parallel park and it is all, it's like when you first, if you've ever had to back up a trailer or boat, oh, which I still can't do I'm properly. I'm so bad at that. It, nightmares. So oh, I'm sweating I'm thinking about parking it. parking the trailer. Startling revelations coming out of British Columbia in an interrogation, Loren. I saw this video yesterday, and uh, I heard your reaction to it, Brett. Uh, It's very, very angering. Yeah, serious questions are being raised about how a teenager who reported a sexual assault was treated by the RCMP. Global News has obtained this police video of a male RCMP officer interviewing an Indigenous teenage girl in 2012. As Global National anchor Donna Friesen explains, it sounds more like an aggressive interrogation. The officer, who at times is alone with the girl, asks a barrage of unsettling questions, including about her sexual history and whether she tried to fight back during the alleged assault. He even asks her whether she enjoyed it. And a warning, it is hard to listen to. Here's an excerpt. Were you at all turned on during this at all, even a little bit? Physically, you weren't at all responsive to his advances, even maybe um, subconsciously? Maybe subconsciously, but no, not. I was really scared. Okay. Because you understand that when a guy tries to have sex with a female and the female is completely unwilling, it's very difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot at the beginning? 
for the whole thing. This happened in 2012 when the teenager was a ward of the state. She was under the care of a foster parent who reported the sexual assault. Her lawyer says there were social workers in the room for part of that interview, but not all of it. In one exchange, the officer accuses the girl of lying to avoid getting into trouble with her foster parent. Is part of the reason you came up with this in the first place and told us about and told your foster dad about this is because you were scared you might be pregnant and you needed the pill? No, it was more because I just got taken advantage of and I didn't consent to it. I was just really scared at the time. I don't want you to lie. I want no lies. I'm not lying though. I didn't consent to this. No charges were laid against the person she accused of committing the sexual assault. The video is surfaced now as part of a civil lawsuit against a Kelowna social worker accused of siphoning off thousands of dollars in financial benefits from children in care. Today, the RCMP gave us a statement saying new training for its officers is a priority and a training course on how to interview sex assault victims and witnesses properly was recently updated. It is not clear what has happened to the officer involved in this case. Global News has also reached out to BC's Ministry of Children and Family Development for comment, but we have not heard back. Global National anchor Donna Friesen. So, I, fine, you can give them better training, but I don't, how do you train someone to be a better human being? Because that's not training involved in that kind of interrogation, in my opinion. When you ask a girl who's come in and said, I've been sexually assaulted, and then you ask her if she was turned on, I, I don't, I don't know in what line of retraining that needs to be told. By the way, don't ask a potential rape victim whether or not she enjoyed it. That doesn't that doesn't require training. That requires human decency. And what, what sort of science is he citing in order to suggest that it would be difficult for right. someone to perform this act at certain times? I, I don't I don't understand the point of view of this officer, quite frankly. And if this is a common line of questioning. We've got a, this is opening, going to open up a gigantic can of worms. Yeah, because this happened in 2012. So what's happened there since 2012? Correct. Well, That's exactly in, what I'm thinking. In theory, there should be improvements every single year in how we deal with this. We've had a whole lot of conversations in recent years about how to speak to sexual assault survivors and people who have been through any form of abuse. So in theory, things should be improved. But again, like to, to my original point, what's the improvement upon a person whose line of questioning starts like that? And this girl's 17 years old. And did you hear how eloquent she was in her answers in the sense of like how she responded? And she's her voice is shaking, but she's trying to explain to him what's going on in her mind and how she's feeling. He's the adult in that room. And she's alone in that room trying to tell him something terrible has happened to her. And that's how he treats it. Loren, does this exemplify for some people for some women as to why they don't come forward when they have been a victim of assault? It's it's It goes back to the, the whole turning where you turned on question goes back to the thing of like, well, what did you do to incite this behavior? It's almost like it, it's the what the were blaming. you wearing question. What were you question. wearing? Oh, well, did you like, like it? Did you really say no? How did you say no? All those things are the questions that everyone who's ever been through that before would fear because they are already doing that. There's no, it, it, this, whatever happened to this girl, she already walked into that room feeling shame for something that wasn't her fault and raising those questions to herself. She doesn't need a person in authority, a police officer, to then make her feel like, well, you, if you were turned on, you know, you might have, and the subconscious question, like, a, that doesn't feel like a gathering information back and forth. The, there, there are insinuations being made and ideas being planted. 
by the investigating the interrogating officer. And it, it feels like an interrogation. She doesn't sound like a victim. She sounds like a, he's making her feel as though she is guilty of something, that she's doing something wrong. It doesn't sound like anybody taking a statement. The whole thing, um, and adding into it that she's an Indigenous woman, which, which advocates have come forward and said, like, that's that's a lot of Aboriginal women who will, who will be able to relate to this and is, is how they feel that they might be treated in circumstances. So it's not just victim blaming and it's not just how women might be treated, but then there's another layer to potentially to her race. And that's additionally concerning. Sounds like uh, she's being interrogated as a suspect in a crime, not a victim of a crime. Greg, what's going on in Alabama? Well, as we know, and as we've been hearing in the news with Jeff Braun, uh, Alabama has uh, banned nearly all abortions. That bill was signed into law by their governor yesterday. Several states across the U.S. have been dramatically altering their access to abortion over the past several months. Yesterday, Alabama's Republican governor did sign the most stringent abortion legislation in the United States, making performing an abortion a felony in nearly all cases. Governor Kay Ivey said in a statement, quote, to the bill's many supporters, this legislation stands as a powerful testament to Alabamians deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God. The bill's sponsors want to give conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court a chance to gut abortion rights nationwide, but Democrats and abortion rights advocates criticized the bill as a slap in the face to women voters. Global's Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco has more details. 25 eyes, 6 nays. With an overwhelming vote of approval, House Bill 314 passes. Alabama state legislators agreed to criminalize abortion at any stage of pregnancy. You don't know what you don't know because you've never been pregnant. Once signed into law, abortion providers could be sentenced to up to 99 years in prison. The only exception is if a pregnancy poses a health risk to a mother. In pregnancies resulting from rape or incest, a woman must carry the baby to term. Abortion health care has to be an option for survivors of sexual violence. You can't possibly know what it means to get raped and then to get pregnant and then to have to make the choice whether or not you decide to carry that pregnancy to term. Alabama becomes the latest state to heavily restrict abortion access. Last week, Georgia signed a so-called fetal heartbeat bill, becoming one of 16 states to have passed or introduced legislation banning abortions six weeks after conception, before many women know they're pregnant. They just see this as their prime opportunity to make this a national fight instead of keeping it at the state level. The backers of Alabama's controversial ban purposely made the law extreme, hoping the issue winds up before the Supreme Court where President Trump has installed a majority of conservative justices. They want the court to revisit the question at the center of Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion. Is the baby in a womb a person? And we believe technology and science shows that it is. It's possible the courts could reopen or reverse a decision made more than four decades ago. At this point, we um, have to face the reality that this may happen. Progressive groups believe that could drastically limit a woman's right to choose, not just in some states, but right across America, forcing a return to the days of illegal, unregulated abortions. 
Jackson, what's the timeline? How soon is this likely to reach the Supreme Court? Well, Donna, it's not likely to be heard here until sometime next year, which is going to make the issue extra contentious because both the hearings and a final decision could drop right into the middle of the 2020 presidential campaign. Abortion is a huge issue for voters, especially Republican voters. We should also point out that while this remains undecided, there's a massive disparity in access to women's health services between states that have worked to liberalize access and those like Alabama that have tried to criminalize it. Donna? Yeah, the issue is going to simmer along. Jackson Prosco in Washington, thank you. That back and forth from Global National last night. And regardless of which side of this question and this controversy and issue you are on, there's no doubt that this law was written in order to face a challenge, to prompt a challenge in court so that it would go to the Supreme Court of the United States. This governor has a track record of extreme maybe that's not far right uh, conservative agendas and uh, it includes everything from changing things with gay rights to the death penalty. She's she's done things to speed up uh, death penalty appeals so that you can expedite more uh, executions of con- convicts. And so it's no surprise that she's done this, I think, for, for so many women. And I'd like to think men in America, though, it's a surprise how far they have gone with this. Not even a child at 11 years old who could be raped by somebody or have been victimized by incest who is impregnated and has zero choice on having that child. You've just removed all choice from anyone. And I, I, I can't believe that this has actually gone this far. There's a place in Winnipeg called Activate Games, and Loren and I immediately looked it up, and we were both kind of, we both just kind of wanted to leave Mm -hmm. uh, the studio and go play at Activate Games. I'm not even listening to you right now. I'm on this website. One of the creators is Adam Schmidt, and he is here in studio, also co-creator of The Real Escape, which from what I understand is one of Winnipeg's finest escape rooms. I'm ashamed I haven't been there yet. Uh, So now I have two places to go. Adam, welcome. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Doing very well. Good. Activate Games. You've been working on this for three years. It's been open for three months. What is it? Yeah, so um, my wife about three years ago wanted uh, to see if we could make a replayable active escape room. Um, we worked uh, We worked hard on it, uh, our build team of about 10 guys. And uh, we came up with this, and it was an entirely new business. So basically it's a state-of-the-art uh, um active gaming facility where you and your group basically enter inside a video game experience and play it physically and mentally to complete challenges. I'm looking at your website right now. You have a climbing wall. Yeah. That's, I'm thinking of that glow uh, miniature golf, miniature putt-putt, as some people call it, and an actual climbing wall. This is this is one of the um, one of the challenges you have to complete. Yeah, that's one of the rooms that we have. Uh, it's basically uh, rock climbing holds that light up uh, and they sense when you're on it. Oh, neat. And so the they light up um, in a certain sequence where you have to move with it and avoid red rocks and um, like hit all the blue rocks and uh, green rocks are safe. And so basically there's a, a plethora of uh, games that we can have with that one room. So it would change every time you go into it. And uh, each each room, so that, that one's called Climb. Um, we have 10 other rooms that are completely different. Um, each room has um, multiple games, and each game has multiple levels. And uh, when you enter into the facility, 
you uh, get an RFID wristband that tracks all of your times down to the millisecond. Mm. So it be, it's become a very competitive, almost sport-like uh, uh, adventure for people. It'll be like a workout, like the wall itself. Absolutely. Well, and then you know what? It's actually one of the... Um, uh, it's definitely a little bit of a workout, but we have rooms that are, are even more... Uh, we have a, uh, a grid floor that lights up and senses when you're on it. It has like 900 uh, squares on it, and it's a huge, huge room. And we can do so many different games with it, and people are running around. And the one interesting thing about that room in particular is, you know, you come out of it and you feel like you're dying. Like it's like you, but when you're in it, it's so much fun, and you don't realize how how much you're working out. What was going on? And like you mentioned, your wife suggested this to you. What was happening in your life that you said, I think like all these adults would want to get in on this? I think, um, you know, I I'm I'm 35. I grew up uh, with video games always in my life. And uh, obviously at a certain point, I'm not going to keep playing video games. Um, I have, <clears throat> this is a way for us to keep playing video games, but with friends and family and get active and basically get off the couch and enter inside those video games that we all played as kids. Um, and uh, Why couldn't you keep playing it. video games? <laughs> well, oh, absolutely. There's a yeah. lot of uh, guys out there who are like, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I and, and you know what? I, 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 play, I, I play video games all the time, but uh, um, it's just a way to actually get out and do do those things physically in, in the real world. So what do we have to uh, thank for this explosion of interactive gaming like this, like these escape rooms and, and what you've created here? Have you borrowed this from somewhere else, or is this your own creation? This tell is, us, this tell is us our the own. genesis here. We have a warehouse uh, north of the airport. We, we've been building this for a couple of years, uh, just like physically building it. The idea is sounds like a laboratory. It is. It is. Uh, all the technology we made ourselves. With uh, We have a great group of engineers that have basically put it all together. It's one of a kind in the entire planet. Um, there's nothing else like it. So we're uh, right now, we've been open for three months. We've had about 25,000 people go through. Wow. And uh, we're, we're looking to expand... Uh, uh, nationally and, and then into the U.S. pretty quickly. Oh my God! And uh, this could be big, right? I think so. Yeah, and it'll always be a <laughs> local. It is big from the sounds of it'll it. It'll also yeah. be. Uh, it'll always be like a Winnipeg thing, though. So Fantastic. What? Like, who are your clients? Is it mostly adults, or is it families coming in? Like, yeah. and, and what are they saying to you as they say why they wanted to be here and try it out? So week weekdays, we have a lot of uh, school groups. Uh, it's a great way for for school groups to get out and, and interact with each other. Um, corporate groups all the time during during the weekdays. But at nights, it's usually adults anywhere from 20 to, to 45 is just our general uh, age groups that we get there. A lot of families come in Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings. Um, you know, if you have older kids, uh, we definitely recommend no one under the age of 10. Um, they can do it, but it's hard. It was designed to be mentally strenuous and physically strenuous. The kids don't seem to have a problem with the physical part of it, but it it's a lot of stuff happening, and uh, we recommend sort of ten and up. But yeah, it's it's like glow bowling on steroids and it's whatever every, growth yeah. hormone yeah. you can take times yeah. times times. This is amazing, and I, I know Brett McGarry's looking at me. He knows that the entrepreneur in me, my wheels are spinning here, Adam. This is a fantastic stuff. Please keep in touch with us. We'd we'd love to know how things are going as you as you try and market this yeah, across North America and around the world. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Adam Schmidt, one of the creators of Activate Games. The website ActivateGames.ca. It's located at thirty three thirty eight Portage.
Avenue, ranked number one for fun stuff to do on TripAdvisor. All right, we want to turn our attention this morning to a story that's uh, making its way through Winnipeg, and it's about the idea that there are a growing number of questions about the number of needles that are being picked off of Winnipeg Street, large in part due to our meth crisis in Winnipeg. And there are also questions about what to do about what we saw last summer, which was a rise in the number of tent cities that grew in Winnipeg in the warmer temperatures. And so that has the city putting out what it calls a request for proposal. Basically, it's looking to hire a contractor this summer to go in and not only pick up needles from parks and other used areas, but potentially dismantle these homeless camps. And we said earlier, this has raised some questions and, of course, some eyebrows. And so we wanted to get the perspective of Main Street Project, which works with thousands of Winnipeg's more vulnerable every single year. Adrian Dedek is the Director of Supportive and Transitional Housing for Main Street and joins us now. Good morning, Adrian. Hi, good morning, good morning. So when you first heard this, that they're looking to hire a business or or a contractor of sorts to deal with not only the needle crisis in Winnipeg, but potentially transitional housing camps or tent camps, what was your first reaction? Well, I think uh, the RPF, the call for it, came as a surprise to a few community agencies. I think there's two parts to this. So it was really interesting to see that the addressing the needles and the camps are both in the same RPF. Because they're two, although connected, they're two very different things. So we support absolutely putting more sharp spins in those nine identified places. Um, I think the bigger picture, though, when it comes to needles and the fear and um, when you see them, what comes to the general public's mind, I think the more important thing is about education and about tying that back to mental health and addiction, not so much the fear of the physical needle. So the Bear Clan does a great job of community cleanup. And I actually think that's an approach that we should be adopting citywide through an education campaign to really take the fear factor out of needles. Now, the camps, that's a bit different for us. So we currently provide um, service where we go out in the community. We have a van patrol that sees about 130 people a night for many, many different reasons who just don't come inside for all the shelters. We have a really great coordinated shelter system as well. And these are people who, should their camps be dismantled, those are their only possessions. And these are people who are displaced and who are going to be further displaced. So I think this might be a good opportunity for us to work with the city or with the agency who it's awarded to, to really try and do a collaborated effort to further resource these people and really address the addictions and mental health piece as a health aspect, not just the dismantling of the of the possessions. So Adrian, we, we've seen changes at the Millennium Library downtown in terms of their security measures that they take. And, and that's been a, a difficult transition for a lot of folks uh, in Winnipeg's homeless community because they, they count on the Millennium Library as yeah. a place to be during the day. So we've had that conversation. Uh, what do we say to people with regard to, to the safety factor of, you know, if you're walking in Whittier Park, and, and I know this for a fact, so I'm very comfortable in, in citing Whittier Park as a location where, yeah. where I know multiple people live in, in the woods between the walking paths and and the river. Uh, what do you say to people that live in those neighborhoods that are that are uncomfortable with their presence, or for those that maybe are quite comfortable with things the way they are? How, how, how do we how do we meander this? How do we handle this situation? Should we just let these folks be? What should we be doing, in your opinion? 
No, in my opinion, I think that the bigger picture is the resources that we put into addiction, uh, treating addiction and mental health. So um, to me, living on those um, encampments and setting up those encampments, that's a result of um, uh, gap in resources or not being able to meet people where they are and sometimes in a harm reduction model. I don't think it's actually about the physical structure. So I think um, also seeing those encampments and you use the word uncomfortable, I think it reminds us that there's poverty, that there's addiction, and I think there's a fear piece to it. Um, and we take the humanizing piece out of it. These are people who we always say, you know, we're always one step away from receiving those services. You could very quickly route it in trauma, have something happen in your life where you could be that person. So I think we have to start going back to our roots of community and of looking at it as um, a community issue and then responding as a community to properly resource those people. And that's the only way you're going to see the dissipation of those camps. And if we just are dealing with the physical structure and removing it, people are survivalists. They will acquire more possessions. They will be more stressed because those were quite often their only possessions. And then they will move locations until that is dismantled and then they'll move back. That's a long-term scenario, and I, I don't think any of us would disagree with what you're saying in terms of addressing the root causes. But if I'm in a business, say, in Osborne Village that has seen um, people sleeping, say, in their vestibule or in their lounge or tents pop up right on the street or outside a church, uh, what, what's the immediate action? What's the best-case scenario or best practice for uh, moving or changing or finding some help for any of those folks who might be there? Because it's still an immediate situation. Absolutely. You know what? I think... Um with anything we do, we leverage relationships and that's the humanizing part again. So I'm not saying every situation is completely safe. I mean, you could be on a bus, you could be walking in Portage Place, there could be any scenario that being around people you don't know is unsafe, but these are still people. So I think we leverage our relationships with people and we get to know people and we make the most headway in working with people through that avenue. So there are agencies out there like the Main Street Project, like the Downtown Chat Team. Um, there's great responses through Street Connections with the WRHA. There's, I think we need to do a better job of creating systems that can respond that aren't police-focused, that aren't, um, you know, the police are, are, are quite tied up doing very important business. Adrian Dudek, Director of Supportive and Transitional Housing from Main Street Project, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Adrian, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You're walking to that door. You know that you're about to tell somebody something, that their, their lives will never be the same after that. And they're always surprised to see you. And unfortunately... The word unfortunate is always used. Um, we're, we're, we're here to deliver some terrible news to you, and I'm sorry to tell you, but your son, and daughter, son or daughter, mother, aunt, brother, husband, has been involved in a terrible accident. It is the unfortunate truth, and we're going to use that word this morning too, unfortunate, that somewhere in this city or province this May long weekend, the words you just heard, Winnipeg Police Officer Sergeant Victor Dillon and Constable George Cullum use, will be repeated at someone's door. On average, there is at least one road fatality every long weekend in Manitoba, and every year there are, on average, about 100 people killed on our roads. 
In many cases, we don't even hear about them. Or if we do, they're mentioned quickly in a newscast or conversation. And then for so many of us, life moves on. But for the families impacted by that impact, their lives have been forever changed. And so this morning, as we head into a weekend where many will take off for the cabin or cottage or might go out celebrating with friends, we want to bring to you some of the stories of those families and the door knock or phone call that shattered their world. There's, there's no way that you can actually describe the feeling that you have. To lose a child compared to a parent a sim- or a, a, a partner, the difference is astronomical. The, the, the grief that we're encountering due to this, uh, I've never felt anything to this extent in my life before. So that was Roy Hildebrand, and his daughter's name was Tia. She was 22 years old, and she was also a mom herself. She had a little two-year-old girl. Last November, for the very first time in her young daughter's life, Tia decided to get a babysitter. It was her first time leaving her daughter with a babysitter, and she went out with friends, and she never came home. Tia was killed in an alleged drunk driving incident that left her brain dead. Here's her brother, Peter. Waking up and getting that phone call, and then not even... 24 hours later having to feel your baby sister's heartbeat for the last time in your fingertips as you take her off life support. It's a really hard thing to deal with every day. Peter is now taking care of his sister's kid. He says that's what she would want him to do, while his dad, Roy, is still struggling to get back up on his feet. Roy had bought a new house before his daughter's death and was renovating it to include a nursery for his grandchild, But when he lost Tia, Roy says he almost lost it all. He's so distraught he's unable to work, understandably so, and he now lives with his son. Well, it's, uh, since my daughter's passing, uh, I have spiraled into a state of depression. And I fight it every morning. Every morning you wake up, she's my first thought. And every night before I go to bed, she's my last. His pain, that's a hard clip to listen to, but Roy wanted to make it clear to anyone who's listening today that he wanted to talk. He not only wants to talk about his daughter, who they all say had this incredible smile that you would never forget. He wants to share her story so that she's remembered not just for her life, but also how she died. I hope that by sharing our story and Tia's story, that people will think twice before they act. Think about what the consequences of your actions are going to be. So that's uh, Roy Hildebrand. We're going to hear more from him at 9.35. But in listening to him, you know, going through some of the tape that was gathered by Global News reporter Joe Scarpelli, I couldn't help but think about uh, all the people that are impacted when when a decision is made or sometimes it's an accident, sometimes it's a choice. All these things happen and and then listen to the repercussions that he'll feel for the rest of his life, that his son will feel, that the daughter who has no mom will now feel. And so for anyone out there, the, the reason why we're having this talk this morning is because we all hit the road. You were at a scene this morning, Greg, we don't know what happened, but someone's life got changed this morning in Portage Avenue. We don't know the incident yet, but there was a serious crash. We and- don't know to what extent, but somebody received a phone call. Maybe multiple people received a phone call this morning. We don't know what the news was that was delivered as part of that phone call or knock on the door. But somewhere in our community, someone woke up to news that a loved one was seriously injured at some point last evening, late last evening. And when I hear 
that conversation and I hear the pain in Roy's voice, it's impossible not to reconsider some of the choices um, that we make with very little regard for the potential consequences. Mm -hmm. And I think Roy's message here is he's imploring you to reconsider picking up that phone when you're driving, to consider what are your plans before you go drinking. Think about it two days in advance, not as you're walking out the door or as you're halfway through the evening about how am I going to get home? He's asking you to think about it now or so it, other people don't need to go through what he went through. In his daughter's case, uh, she had gotten into a car with alleged drunk driver. She was in the back seat with a friend. And so, you know, there's all sorts of ramifications there too sure. in the sense of the driver uh, allegedly made a bad choice. And he says, he, you know, he wishes he he'd always, you know, you always talk to your daughter and your kids about what to do if you're in that scenario and you're about to get in a vehicle with someone who might be drinking and you do all these things. And, and so he just wants people to listen. And he's... Um, Again, I said he's coming on with us later this morning, but he's excited to come on in the sense that he wants you to hear him loud and clear. This morning, we launched a new series that we're going to roll out over the next couple of days called Lives Changed Forever. Yeah, and we're talking about this because on average, there's at least one road fatality every long weekend in Manitoba, and we're heading into a long weekend. And we know on average, there's 100 people every year that are killed in our roads. And I think perhaps too often, they might appear in the headlines as just a very brief mention, or perhaps we don't even talk about them at all. And for the families who've lost someone, the truth is life will never be the same again. That's the reality for Roy Hildebrand and his family. And we've been telling you part of his story this morning, but we are extremely privileged to have him in studio with us now to hear more about his daughter, Tia. Good morning, Roy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I was saying earlier, I I was listening to some of your explanation about that night when you learned of your daughter's death. And I, I, um, I think we all had tears in our eyes just trying to fathom what you're possibly going through. So I, I want to thank you because I know this is hard and I know, but you're also here because you want to tell about what happened. So can we go back to that day? Tia was a young mom looking for her first night out in a long time. Is that right? Yeah, she, uh, she, her grandmother uh, would sometimes take Kari on Fridays and give Tia a night out. But uh, it was the first time that Tia had actually uh, brought herself to be able to let a babysitter somebody other than family, uh, look after Kari for a night. And uh, her mom was bugging her for the phone number for the babysitter. And, of course, you, you never expect anything such as that to happen to you. So she was, oh, don't worry, we don't, uh, you don't need to worry about getting Allie's phone number and et cetera, et cetera. And then, lo and behold, uh, we get a phone call at 4 in the morning that, uh, or I should say Judy got the phone call at 4 in the morning that T had been involved in a serious accident and we needed to get to the Health Sciences Centre. Uh, she called me at my residence and I got in the truck, went down, picked her up, and we went to the Health Sciences Centre to uh, inevitably find out uh, that Tia had passed uh, due to the car crash. And uh, being in the position at that point, not knowing where Kari was, uh, I must say uh, we were beside ourselves. Uh, it was several hours before we actually knew where she was. We knew that she was safe because he would never leave her with anybody that uh, she didn't trust 150%, never mind 100%. So, uh, but until we had her back in our arms, uh, it was quite uh, quite unnerving, I would, I would say. 
obviously, um, Kari, your granddaughter's involvement adds a whole other level to this experience for you and your family. And just hearing you, I never even would have thought about that whole logistical piece. And of course, logic goes right out the window. But I can't help but think I've got uh, boys that are going to be 13, so they're not driving yet. But I've got friends who have kids that drive and they are already warning me about the sleepless nights and the and the worry that goes along with, with your kids being out on the road. You you maybe were already past that, Roy, to the point that you know, because of because of Tia's age, you, you probably slept okay at night when, when she was out. You didn't worry about her driving necessarily. Well, Tia didn't have a driver's license. Uh she was kinda actually afraid to drive, to be honest. Oh boy. Uh, but uh, this year I had purchased a motorcycle for her and she was very excited to, uh, get out and ride it this year. Uh, unfortunately that's not going to happen. Uh, but, uh, the motorcycle is being kept for her daughter and it'll be actually at the Autorama show next year. Uh, it's a tribute bike. So, uh, anybody wants to see it, it'll more than welcome come down and take a look at it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, as far as driving goes, uh, no, I, I, was past that point where, you know, you're, you're worried 24-7 about your kids. Tia had grown up into a, a beautiful young woman. She had just really, truly come into being a woman and being a mother. Uh, she was blossoming so much. And uh, all of it cut short due to a senseless and... Uh, uh, how would you describe she it? She got into a car with an alleged drunk driver. With an alleged drunk driver, yeah. She uh, got in the back seat with her friend. They were supposed to be going to 7-Eleven. And uh, one thing led to another, and somehow he ended up speeding, lost control of the vehicle, and they struck a tree. And uh, Tia passed, and Shelby, uh, her friend that uh, survived the accident, my heart goes out to her, uh, that the survivor's guilt that she's encountering is just terrible. And uh, Shelby and I actually have been discussing uh, in the future, uh, once the pain gets a little easier to handle, that uh, we're going to try and become advocates for Mad Canada and go around to schools and put on presentations, discuss our story, tell our stories. Uh, I have many other stories other than just Tia to tell, uh, but that's another day. Uh, but uh, it's really important to me and to Shelby now that the story gets told and that people can actually hear it from someone that's had it happen to them, not just somebody else sitting there, such as a police officer or a counselor telling you the story. It's coming from someone that it's actually happened to. We were talking about the impact goes beyond just the loss for you when you talk about life not being the same again it's not just that your daughter is not here anymore uh it's my understanding you're, you you haven't gone back to work yet six, no, six I, months later i haven't been able to uh i guess compose myself enough on a daily basis it's tough every hour every minute it goes by uh, not to think of her and i miss her terribly but uh we have to move forward uh, slowly with time here, uh, I'm being able to gather myself back up and, and move forward uh, with the premise knowing that I have to tell her story. We have to make a difference. Uh, she would want us to be out here screaming at the top of our lungs to make a difference. 
And I'm sure she's smiling down on us all that we're sitting here today talking about it. And I also understand that uh, you move, have since moved in with your son as well. Yes. Uh, I had, uh, Tia loved my penthouse that I was renting on Sturgeon Road. It uh, had the greatest view in the world. But in order to accommodate the grandchildren, I gave up the penthouse and had rented a house on Roseberry Street. And we were excitedly putting together the nursery for Curry and for my grandson Kingston to come and stay in. And uh, unfortunately, 17 days after I moved in, this occurred and life has never been the same, nor will it ever be the same again. Roy, what's the message? What do you want the folks joining us today? What do you want them to to learn from your story? If there's a lesson here, I don't want to get too deep inside your head, but what is it that you would like us to take away from this time with you today? The The biggest thing I would like everybody to realize is think before you act. Your actions can create consequences that will ripple through time for the rest of people's lives, including your own. Uh, don't drink and drive. It's the worst thing in the world you could do. Uh, that being said, I would be a hypocrite if I said in my early years, I didn't do it. Uh, but again, that doesn't make anything right, that I was lucky enough that something didn't happen to me. Uh, look what happened to Tia. It wasn't her... She wasn't in control of the situation. Make sure that if you are going to go somewhere that you have control of your situation, don't, don't let somebody else shape your future. Be smart. Uh, make wise choices. Uh, not just when you're consuming alcohol, but in all your daily choices. Uh, you never know when life is going to change. And it, it changes forever when a thing like this happens. And it's not just the family, it's the friends. The entire network is affected by a, a tragedy such as this. As well as the fellow that was driving. His entire world, his family's entire world, uh, everybody's world has changed. And we're still waiting for his case to work its way through the courts, correct? Yeah, it was remanded again yesterday over to June 14th. And uh, hopefully the prosecutor says that we may possibly get a plea on that day. We're not sure. Uh, that uh, remains to be seen. But uh, it's one heck of a process to go through. And if we can prevent it for other people, please think before you act, folks, in all aspects of life, not just on the, on the city streets, when you're out boating, when you're doing sports, anything. Life can change in a moment. Roy, I often tell my kids that uh, there are certain situations in life where you may only get one opportunity to make a mistake because there are decisions that we can make that where there are no second chances. And I think this highlights that, that that whole contemplation about decisions that you make that that may or may not be unsafe. Yep. Yep, you're exactly Taking right. Taking that extra time to think about it. Yep, you are 100% right. Uh, think about your actions. I know at times we most usually don't, uh, but uh, it really makes an impact on everybody when, when something such as this occurs. The, the, uh, the impact and the ripple effect 
that occurs forever. It, uh, we're forever changed. I'm forever changed. Uh, I would just like to also, while we're here, uh, take the opportunity to thank Mad Canada for allowing us to go to the national conference just several weeks ago. Uh, it's comforting being with people that can really uh, associate with the pain and the suffering that you're going through as it's all victims that are there as well as survivors. So please uh, support Mad Canada. They're a great organization. I am going to be uh, much more involved with them now in the future. And uh, everybody, please think safe this weekend. Roy Hildebrand joining us live on 680 CJOB. His daughter Tia was killed in a crash that uh, an alleged drunk driver was at the wheel. She was a passenger in that vehicle. Roy, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.